You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. Today we are beginning 2 Thessalonians, and we're just going to do chapter 1 today. It's a very short chapter, it's only 12 verses, so we'll have a lot of time to talk about some application, and maybe to, as Drew likes to say, nerd out and get a little deeper into the text. Uh, We usually do the show in three sections. First, we just read the chapter and give you a basic outline. And Drew's got our outline for today. But Drew, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of remind us a little bit of some of the background with Thessalonians before we start with the outline, if that's okay with you. That is okay with me, if our listeners can Mm -hmm. bear with it, because we do mention this a lot, but it's uh, Acts 17. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, first few verses there, Paul establishes a church in the Macedonian province in the city of Thessalonica. Mm-hmm. He's only able to be there a few weeks. Uh, the text says that he preached three Sabbaths there. Yeah, he, Maybe he stayed longer, maybe not. But the persecution was really bad, which ties into today's text. Yeah, Persecution was really bad, so bad that the disciples urged Paul and the others to leave town, and they had to go. And so uh, he didn't get to finish his work that we assume he usually does with a congregation that he establishes. Mm -hmm. So these two letters are very similar in their subject matter. I believe there's good evidence. We won't get into it today. That's not the scope of this podcast, but there's good evidence that they were written in quick succession I think so, too, yeah. You know, maybe uh, he wrote the first letter, and then there are some indications that um, um, he received a report from the church or something like that, yeah. t- telling about some of the problems they were having, and so he addresses those problems in this letter. Mm-hmm. I think it's good maybe to keep in mind when we get to the front of this, you know, if you're listening, uh, maybe not able to look at your Bibles, we go through it. To kind of keep the scene in mind, uh, it's likely, like you mentioned, you know, it's likely just maybe a year or a year and a half removed from the previous letter. Um, and we get that from just the first verse that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are together. Uh, if you follow their travels in Acts, um, they go to Corinth, and they stay there for two years, and then when they leave, Silas kind of, he's not with them anymore. So Silas is sent somewhere to do something, and uh, he doesn't come. Uh, after that, the three of these three are not mentioned as being together for the rest of the book of Acts. So just okay, a real so quick... It had to have been written in Corinth during yeah. the... Unless they uh, met... And second missionary recorded. journey. Yeah. And so probably very soon after that first one, which for me as I read it, I'm thinking, okay, this is you know not like a 20 years later... Paul's writing back mm-hmm. to this church that at the start was doing so well, and now let's see what happened when they grew up. You know, it's still a very much in the moment of the previous letter yeah. that we went over. Um, There's the some progress series. we'll see today. There's some uh, subtle references to some progress that they had been making. Yeah. But, you know, like what we're saying is there hasn't been a whole lot of time between the two letters. Right. Uh, they go together very nicely for that reason. Mm -hmm. So what today's episode is about is affliction. We saw a lot of persecution and affliction references to hardship in 1 Thessalonians, but it really comes to the forefront Mm 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And so we'll just uh, pick up with that theme. This is a group of Christians facing serious affliction. And we'll see three things about the affliction in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, the first thing that we see is the righteous purpose of affliction. There, you know, that's a hard thing for a lot of people, and a lot of uh, atheists, maybe all atheists, say the biggest problem with people who believe in God is the fact that there is suffering and affliction on the earth. Why would a good God allow suffering? And Paul is going to address, he's not addressing that question, but what he says answers that question in these first few verses because he's saying there is a righteous purpose for affliction. Look at verse 3 and following. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So their endurance of affliction is evidence mm -hmm. of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also are suffering. So we'll stop right there and try to explain this idea that those verses talk about a righteous purpose to affliction. Um, before we get to that, though, recall that in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul thanked God for the productivity of their faith, hope, and love. Yeah, That, that trio of virtues. Similar. Yeah, he says that, and, and this one, it's not the same. It's not faith, hope, and love. It's, uh, what do we read there? Faith, steadfastness, and love, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, you could say steadfastness and hope are similar attributes. I don't think Paul is trying to be technical here, but he's highlighting those three things in Second Thessalonians 1, their faith, their love, and their steadfastness in the face of affliction. Mm -hmm. So in the first letter, he was talking about the productivity of that, you know, the labor of love, the work of their faith. Here he's, he's thanking God for the growth of those things. And it, it just goes along with the theme of affliction. As the affliction increased, so did their faith and their steadfastness and their love. Yeah. Which is what you see in the real world all the time. Um. Churches that are prosperous and in a peaceful, complacent situation don't grow a whole lot. And ironically mm -hmm. to us, churches in places of persecution grow. We see that in the book of Acts. And so it seems to be the case here as well. But speaking to the righteous purpose of affliction, we'll see that through those virtues, because they showed them, instead of choosing to be bitter or whatever, uh, there is a righteous purpose in these afflictions because through these qualities, the affliction had caused them to be worthy of the kingdom of God. He says that twice in this chapter, the first time in verse 5, which we read, and he repeats it again in verse 11. He's praying that God would make them worthy of his calling. And that all is through their you know, faith in the face of affliction. He calls this the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, verse 5, because their affliction guaranteed that glory would follow. God's righteous judgment will ensure that they won't be treated unfairly in eternity, that he'll make all things right. And that leads us to the second, uh, the second point about affliction here, which is 
the certain judgment on affliction? And Paul answers three questions here. The first one is, when will this judgment come? And verse 7 says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. That's when it will happen. Mm -hmm. At the second coming, which is talked about a lot in the first letter. Right. Judgment day, end of time, whatever label you want to put on it. Mm -hmm. The resurrection would be another accurate way of describing it. So you have that. When will it happen? When Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes back. Number two, who will be punished when the Lord comes as judge? Verse 8 answers that question. He will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So it's not, you know, the perfect people who will be saved and the imperfect and the, and the people who have sinned will be lost. It's all based on the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Those who have responded in faith to the gospel will be saved. Those who have not obeyed the gospel will be lost. Finally, number three, what will their punishment be? That's described in verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So you see a description of hell, and we're going to come back to this. I'm sure that our listeners are interested in what the Bible has to say about hell. And we haven't talked about that a whole lot on the podcast. So this is an opportunity yeah. to, to discuss that, what the nature of the destruction is and mm-hmm. you know what the nature of hell is. But I'll point out in the reading section here that he describes hell. You know, Jesus used a lot of real vivid pictures for hell, like um, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a mm-hmm. flame, a fire, so on. But here it's described as an eternal separation from God, away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. At its essence, I think that's what hell is, just being separated from God. But moving on, again, we'll get back to these things um, in the next segment. But after you see the righteous purpose for affliction, the certain judgment on affliction, you see the glorious end of the affliction described in verses 10 through 12, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the most interesting part of that to me is that there is a double glory. That's how John Stott described it, I think, Hmm. a double glory. He had already talked in verse 7 about Jesus being revealed objectively. So there's the glory of seeing him. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Revelation 1-7 says, Every eye shall see him. And then the other glory is the splendor revealed in us. So it's not objectively, it's coming like emanating through us or from us on that day Mm -hmm. so that we'll be transformed by it and uh, become the means by which it is displayed. Mm -hmm. And I love how John Stott describes this, saying God's holy people will be a filament which itself glows with the light and heat when the electric current passes through it. We will not only see, but we will share his glory. Mm. And again, he's talking about You know, that last verse, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God. All of it is by grace. 
And if I had not read Stott's commentary on that, I would have never seen, you know, that beautiful idea of mm-hmm. glory in us as well as yeah. outside of us. You know, you see Jesus in his glory, and then that glory emanates through us. It just shows, mm-hmm. again, the importance that God attaches to individual Christians. Um, it's just amazing, and it's only by God's grace that that kind of thing is possible. Right. Yeah, it goes back to even, you know, like Isaiah, where he's telling the people that they're the city on the hill, that they're the light to the world, that they're supposed to be, you know, that I guess it, this is a very vivid picture of kind of what we're supposed to be doing day in and day out. Yeah. We're supposed to be that visible, you know, a little bit of the visible light that's ultimately yeah. coming from God, but it's just shining through his people. Yeah. And it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount as well. You know, you are the mm-hmm. light of the world. And um, also Isaiah 43, 7, uh, we've been created for his glory. Yeah. So maybe this is what Isaiah was talking about way back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Uh, when he comes back, when Jesus comes back, that glory is revealed not just in him, but in us as well. It's a beautiful thought that we skip over too many times. emotionally Uh, and so I want to raise a couple of points here to illustrate that and you know we we talk it out you know in this part of the podcast the difficult complicated hard to accept things we we try to go there on it I'm not saying we always get it right but uh, there are two here at least and the first one has to do with the people God will judge. Mm-hmm. It's pretty inclusive in verse 8. He will bring vengeance on A, those who do not know God, and B, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. There's a lot there. The easier one is those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, um, you do obey the gospel. You know, a lot of folks, yeah. they don't, I don't hear that language much anymore. And I'm sure in some religious traditions that language has never been used because the Reformation's knee-jerk reaction to the works-based salvation of Roman Catholicism. But, mm-hmm. you know, folks get in this this way of thinking where, you know, you never you never earn your salvation. Of course you don't. But you don't obey to be saved. But the Lord says you're not gonna you're gonna have vengeance executed on you if you do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Which I think includes obedience in terms of believing in Jesus, confessing his name, repenting of sin, being baptized, 
in water for the remission of sins. Mm-hmm. So that's the first first group or part of the first group. That's letter A. Or that's No, I've already been through that. That's letter B, the mm-hmm. way I enumerate it. But the more difficult one is those who do not know God. Yeah. And, you know, I get this question a lot. What about people who live in areas where the gospel has never penetrated? And there are mm-hmm. still places like that on earth. What about the people who never had a chance to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it fair that God would condemn them? And, you know, here, Paul is saying that Jesus is coming to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. Mm -hmm. And so we have to accept that. Uh, Now, I realize that knowledge can be a flexible term in the Bible. It doesn't always just mean being aware of something. Uh, It Mm -hmm. indicates a relationship. But I think in this case, that makes it even stricter, right? Because if it was just those who don't intellectually know God, that's a smaller group than those who don't have a relationship with God. Yeah. So I don't think it helps you any if you say, well, you're, you're taking knowledge here in the wrong way. It's, it's about relationships. Okay, well, you just eliminated a lot more people yeah. through that. Yeah, you're right. Even those who have the like academic, logical understanding but don't really have a relationship, that's, that's a much smaller pool. But I think, I mean, that, that question, the way you worded it, it's also a problem with like little kids. Like what if there's a kid who doesn't know who God is yet, you know, mm-hmm. too young to understand something. I mean, there's got to be... Well, that gets into, yeah, that's a whole nother can of worms. Right. So, and, you know... I I think... And I'll, you want me to weigh on this a little? Weigh yeah, in a let, little me hear, real quick? let me hear your perspective on it. So, I think that question... When we say, what about those who have never heard? And we talk about usually a remote village, like in some that's country. That's what we're picturing, yeah. yeah. But there are people... Like, the first thing I thought of was a little kid. You know, like a child who doesn't know who God is yet. And I, and we give, why do we give the children the pass and immediately think of the, you know, the mysterious village in the Himalayas somewhere mm-hmm. or something like that? Uh, well, it's because the kids don't know the difference between right and wrong, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know any better. And we talk and about they that. they have committed sin. Yeah. They're, not, not by biblical definition what sin is. Mm-hmm. And I think... That kind of thinking is explained when you get, because when you talk about the remote village and you're talking about adults, you're talking about grown people, they know the difference in right and wrong. You might say, well, how do they know the difference if they've never had a Bible, if they've never opened a Bible? Well, Romans chapter 2 kind of, I don't know, it kind of, um, or excuse me, chapter 1, right? No, it is chapter 2, yeah. Um, It's where Paul is talking about how even those who don't have the law, no, it is chapter one. I'm sorry, I keep getting. There's something here. in both chapters. Yeah. I think I'll, if I know if I'm anticipating you correctly. So God, number one, even for the Gentiles who don't have the law of God. So the book of Romans at the beginning, Paul's making the point that okay, the Jews who have the law, who had God's revelation, you didn't follow it, you messed it up, you're in sin. The Gentiles, they didn't have God's revelation, but they still knew who God was, and they messed it up too, and they didn't follow him, so everybody's in sin. But when he talks about the Gentiles, he said, even though they didn't have the law, verse 19, 
what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, for they are without excuse, uh, or so they are without excuse. So in verse 21 it says, although they knew God, they did not honor him. So those are the ones who did not obey the gospel of our Lord right. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And I think there certainly stands to reason there is a innate in all of us. And I believe it's in chapter 2, Drew, where he talks about the innate knowledge of morality. Is right. that right? Yeah, verses 14 and 15. Mm-hmm. They, uh, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Mm-hmm. So they, God was holding, at least before the Christian age, holding yeah. Gentiles accountable to the moral law in their hearts. Which is not instilled. as strict a standard as the Jews yeah. had. Mm-hmm. You know, they were under different, the Jews were under a covenant, the rest of the world wasn't during that time. Yeah. Um, now everybody is under the new covenant. So it's mm-hmm. a different situation today. Right. But I under, I I'm with those people who are hurting for the lost in those areas the gospel has not penetrated. Uh, but I also when you think of this logically, here's here's one of the problems. If it's true that you get a pass for never hearing the gospel, why do we do mission work? I mean, mm-hmm. if that is true, then we condemn more souls than we save by doing mission work. It's better yeah. for us to keep the gospel a secret because it's this dangerous thing that triggers condemnation the moment it's heard. Mm-hmm. That can't be true, you know. Right, it's the exact opposite. Right. Yeah. And just it's not logical. The logic is sin condemns, all have sinned, all by default are con- condemned mm-hmm. until Jesus comes to save. He puts forward a provision through his death for salvation. And that's the remedy to the problem the whole human race has. And it's just like if the whole human race was bitten by a snake, poisonous snakes, only those who had the antidote survive. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that made any sense, but. Yeah, and so you've I, you know, got to take the way the it logically to works out. You can't just say, well, what about these people who live in this remote country that never got the antidote? Well, I mean. Let's go preach to them. Yeah, let's go let's take figure them. figure it out. And I know that's not an easy thing. But do you think, I will, and maybe <laughs> we're recording here, uh, but I will ask you, you know, just for the sake of some some good conversation, um, and obviously to get to the truth on this. So the hypothetical situation is always this, right? There's a guy in some remote country who does not know exactly who God is, but he does know there is a God. So he does know the invisible attributes of God that have been seen in creation. He knows there's something out there. And he has that innate moral compass built into him because we're all created in the image of God. So he's, you know, I guess he doesn't have a Bible, but he is living as, uh, I don't know how to really word this in the right way, but you following know, his conscience. He's following that conscience, which is God-given the best that he can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he never gets a chance to hear. You know, how, I guess, that's usually when I get that question or when I hear that question, it's painted 
in the way that it's like, well, you're not, basically the idea is you're not going to condemn this guy, right? You're not going to tell me that this guy Mm -hmm. is lost for good. And the question is, we have to ask, number one, what makes a person saved? What is it that takes a person out of destined for death to destined for eternal life in God? And if the answer to that question is what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says, if the answer to that question is the only way that we get that is by coming into contact with the blood of Christ, then it's pretty simple. If you come into the contact with the blood of Christ, you are, and if not, you're not. Now, obviously, you know, we don't want to play judge and jury on anybody. Right. You know, who knows if 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 God extends grace and, you know, whatever scenario you want to paint where it's impossible for somebody to want to say no, but we don't want to cheapen what Christ did for people by saying, eh, you don't really have to come into contact with the blood of Christ. If you don't know about it, then who cares? Don't ask and you'll be okay. You yeah. know, don't, don't learn anything or you'll be okay. Now, I, there is some, well, I was going to say this passage, logically speaking, is easy to understand. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense. Emotionally, that's where the difficulties are. Yeah. Uh, we're grappling with this idea of being lost, and we're going to get to hell in a minute. But one thing that eases my mind a little bit is what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty and following when he told the villages he had visited personally, Chorazin and Bethsaida, that if he had visited um, Tyre and Sidon and uh, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, if he had visited those cities the way that he had visited the villages of his day, those cities from the Old Testament era would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, and he tells them it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So yeah. they, God does take into account your ability to obey. Uh, there's a better way yeah. to put that. Your opportunity is taken into account somehow on Judgment yeah. Day and when it comes to your punishment. It's especially, I think, but and that's a really good one to point to. I wish I'd had that one when we did that Romans class here um, because I definitely think that sheds some light on... Well, he's talking we were, about Gentile cities, you know, that all they had was yeah. this sense of right and wrong. They didn't have the law. That innate conscience mm-hmm. uh, that was, you know, God gave them to guide them. Now, let's be clear. We're not saying that God saves today without the gospel. Right. The gospel I, is all that we know of that saves. I think when we... Today. Yeah. I think when we say that you can be saved without it... I did I really, not say that. I think... I know, I know. Yeah. But I'm saying we want to say when that. person says it. I think a yeah. lot of people want to say that, myself included. There's a big part of me that would love to say that because then I'd... I don't have the guilt hanging over my head of, well, if I don't reach these people, then they're lost eternally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a responsibility that God put on the shoulders of all of his prophets. You know, we've yeah. talked about Ezekiel on the podcast I before. Thought I was thinking of that, yeah. God telling Ezekiel, hey, if you don't warn somebody and they don't turn from their ways, they're going to be judged, but you're going to be judged too. Because his blood it was your I will require on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. So we have... What do you, what'd you call it in one of those lessons you did? A haunting caution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which yeah, is a, right. Which, which every time I think about that now, I think of the haunting, the haunting caution. caution. Yeah. 
Which, I mean, it's terrifying, and it puts so much responsibility on our shoulders, but it's, you know, maybe it's time that we quit trying to back down from that and say, no, those people are fine. We don't got to reach out to them. Maybe our motivation, maybe a Christian's motivation for answering that question is not so much, oh, I don't want those people to die, but maybe there's another layer to our answer of, well, I don't want those people to die, and I don't want to have the responsibility of having to go talk to them. Like, I don't want to be responsible for that. If if nobody gets out there to them, then that's God's thing. It's not my fault. We're a bunch of Jonas is what we are. Yeah. We're Jonah. We just don't want to go. We're hiding out, telling ourselves they don't deserve it, or they'll be just fine without me getting the ship on the way to Tarshish. And yeah. uh, all the while, God is saying, nope, my plan is not that. My plan is for you to go tell them the good news. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, let's talk about hell a little bit. Of course, you know, again, this is a emotionally difficult subject, but hell is described here in vivid details. Uh, you have the flaming fire, uh, but then you get into what hell is in verse 9, eternal destruction. And we mentioned in the last segment that the way it's defined here is away from the presence of the Lord. So it's a separation from God for all of eternity. Right. Let's let's put a peg in that for a minute and talk about eternal destruction because there is a debate that's been going on for many years between people who believe in hell as eternal and those who believe it to just be an annihilation of some kind. So we have the the folks on one side believe that hell is punishment that lasts for an eternity. On the other side, you have people that say, that's too cruel. God would not do that, um, presuming to know what God would do out, outside of what he has said in his word. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they're talking about here is a destruction that is an annihilation that reverberates for an eternity. So the consequences of it are eternal. Yeah. You know, you died... And you're still dead, and then you're still dead, and you're, you know, thousands yeah. of years from now, you're still going to be affected by the condemnation that came upon you that one moment in time when you were judged and wiped out. Yeah. Um, neither one of those, by the way, are something that I would want. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying way. that one's good and one's bad, but I'm saying yeah, the text says horrible. eternal destruction. Now, some have taken this word destruction. And have said, well, you know, if I destroy something, it's not there anymore. But the word destruction, uh, especially how Paul uses it, uh, can mean more than just, you know, termination. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he uses that word of the incestuous man that he turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Same word that we have here. But he says, I'm doing that in order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So they followed through with his advice in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, disciplining this man. They turned him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He did not physically die. In fact, there's evidence in 2 Corinthians that he repented, and then he was there in his flesh with the congregation worshiping. What do you think they did to him? That's a question for another time. Well, they withdrew fellowship from him. That's what they did. And there was a ruination or a, um, you know, a um, punishment of his body and soul. You know, mm-hmm. he, 
there was a moral destruction that went on in his life until he turned it around. Yeah. Uh, he did not go away out of existence. So why would we think of the, the only reason we think of it in that way when there's it comes a, to hell is because that we'd rather have that than eternal punishment. And there's what it's in Revelation, the lake of fires, the second death. So I think I've heard yeah. that in in relation to this as well. But where death, but death is, is not going out of existence. Right. I mean, if it separation. is, then when we physically die, that's all there is to us. But nobody who believes in Christ and believes in the Bible defines physical death that way. Mm-hmm. So why do we think of spiritual death that way? Now, yeah. I think the most powerful statement on the nature of hell in terms of how long it will last is Matthew twenty five forty six. That's where the sheep go to eternal life and the goats to eternal punishment. So you have this, uh, you know, these parallels, and nobody denies that heaven is everlasting life. But the same adjective is used of the punishment in hell. So how can you define the first part of that verse as eternal or everlasting, and the second part of that verse as annihilation or immediate destruction? Yeah. Um, You know, we have to define life as to make sense in the light of the way we define punishment in that verse. Mm-hmm. So that's Matthew twenty five forty six. I guess what I'm saying is the traditional view of hell in terms of its eternal nature holds up in this text. Mm-hmm. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I think I've, I've got a couple things here I want to run by you about just the nature of hell. But I was going back prepping for this and found some notes from an old college class and thought they were kind of interesting. Just want to run them by you. And if we don't like it, we'll cut this out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure, it would be great. Yeah. So there's this, uh, C.S. Lewis has written a book called The Great Divorce, and in it he has a lot of, and I know you're familiar with this book, Drew, because we mm-hmm. were talking about it before yeah. we hit record. Uh, basically, these people take a bus ride from hell to heaven, and they're allowed to see heaven for certain period of time. I've never read the book, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they get to go to heaven, and they get to see some things. That's the skinny of the book, and I didn't look any more into the summary because I didn't want to know any more about the book because I wouldn't like to read it. Uh, but uh, it, within that book, you get a lot of Lewis's ideas on what hell and what heaven really was, and he has this one idea that I think is really interesting, but it's kind of speculative, so I wonder how much I can take this to the bank. Mm-hmm. So God has created man, Adam and Eve, with the purpose to, you know, like you read in Ecclesiastes, to um, obey God, keep his commands, you know, mm-hmm. um, to be in a relationship with God, to love God, for God to love them. Israel kept messing that up. And basically he says that heaven is, he sets it up, first of all, that heaven is basically the place where we can fully serve the purpose we were created for once again. Mm-hmm. So God finally brings us back to our to original Eden, purpose. Like to yeah. the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And however, you know, that is, is I don't we won't get into, you know, yeah. whether the streets are really gold or not. Uh, but he says heaven is a place for humans to be as like I guess to regain their full humanity. You know, with that definition of humanity being created for good works and God, to walk with God, to be free from sin, all those sort of things. Um, kind of like Adam and Eve. Um, 
So he makes this claim that hell is a place for people who have lost most of their humanity as God has created them to be humans, you know, using that definition of humanity. I need to word this in a different way because I can already tell that this isn't making sense. But basically it's this, the more in line you are with God, the more you are actually human, the more you are serving your purpose, the Mm -hmm. more that you sin, um, the more that you lose. He has this really good quote, each time uh, we choose ourselves or sin over God, we surrender a spark of our humanity. The more we slip away from the image that God created us in, the more we lose our humanity. Mm-hmm. In the book, he talks about uh, this lady who complains a lot, and he has one of the characters ask, is this lady a grumbler or is she a grumble? Like uh-huh. saying, is she just a person who sometimes has she turned into does it? this, or has she totally lost you know, She's the now thing. identified with the sin instead of yeah. with her and so, humanity. Yeah, so I say all she really is. Yeah. Right. And I say all that at the front end so that I can say this. So Lewis has this belief that hell is a place for it's built to be for the fallen angels and that humans were never meant for hell. Uh, but that the people in hell are basically they're there because they choose to be there. What they desire is no God, they want to be away from God whether they don't think he exists or they don't want him to exist or whatever they say, I'd rather have me and myself and what I've got than what God has planned for me. And you mentioned a moment ago that uh, this eternal punishment is summarized in the fact that they're going to be away from God, away from the presence of God. So hell Mm -hmm. would then be the only place that we know of that is outside of God's omnipresent being. And the question of who made it or how it got there, I guess is another question, but we can assume, I guess, that God created it. So he creates one place that he is not present, and that is hell. And if we decide to give up God and give up our humanity, reject both of those things, then the only place left for us to go is the only place that's away from the presence of God. Any thoughts? I know it's a lot of things to throw at you at once. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the humanity describing this in terms like of the omnipresence of God that is not present in one place. I mean, yeah. if you're if you're not present in one place, then you're not omnipresent. Mm-hmm. But the presence of God is used in several different senses. There is the technical sense, which is the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. But then there's the uh, spiritual sense, if you want to put it, where he's with us in a special way. Like he was with the Israelites on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Mm-hmm. Or like when Jesus said, Behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's a special way Jesus is with us. And then, of yeah. course, heaven, where we dwell, where God dwells with us and is the light for us. And we serve him day and night. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's I interesting too. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I think that Lewis, while you know his work is brilliant and his ideas are very original, and much of his work, including some of what he says about hell, helps me understand the Bible more. He also he also made some stuff up. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's like what I wish hell was. Yeah. More so than what. The Bible explains it to be, and look, he was writing. That's a novel, right? It's, it's not a, it's not like mere Christianity or yeah, even the Screw Tape Letters. It's but some of this is taken it's a story. also 
Yeah, I think some of this is taken from different works as well. The main thing that this was based off of was The Great Divorce. But I do believe this was taken from some of his other works. Um, I know at least the screw tape letters is in there, obviously, but that's also, you know, fictional. Because mm-hmm. that's from the perspective of a, like a head demon running to a little yeah. lackey. Well, um, hell, uh, so we we use symbols to describe heaven. And, you know, what it boils down to with heaven is it's a place where we dwell with God. There are symbols that describe hell, like the flaming fire here, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the bottom line is it's where God is not. God will be with his people in a special way in heaven. He's not there, and away from him is really bad. I don't know exactly technically what it's going to be like. I don't know that in my mortal frame I am able to know, to comprehend what hell or heaven will be like. I just have a few details revealed to me, a lot of it in symbolic language, but I can mm-hmm. I can't go wrong when I say hell is away from the presence of God because that's you know what this passage says. So does that coming back to this omnipresence of God thing? So we God is definitely not present in hell in well, the same way that He's present. Yeah, with definitely us in heaven. Not. Yeah, but is He present with us in? Is He present with the people in hell in any way? In, or is He totally removed from them? And this is an interesting question. Because I I kind of look at it as, you know, God, from several passages, he holds our breath in his hands, right? So if there's no God, there's no anything. Mm-hmm. So if there's no presence of God, there's no possibility for life to be sustained in any capacity. So yeah. if we're away from God, then what does that say about the nature of hell? Uh, if there's no presence of God, now if there's existence in hell presence of God somehow has to be there, right, to sustain existence. Yeah. I mean, I've never thought about it so, this way before. I didn't think so. about it until you just kind of painted that little picture for yeah, me. Yeah, I think that's a, that's I'll say a that fair Q&A here at Asheville Road. Well, I mean, it's a question we have no answer to. Yeah. But if you're thinking, you're thinking, you're deductively reasoning that God is present in that way. I mean, we know he's omnipresent. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't change because God doesn't change. He's infinitely all that he is. So how else is he present in hell than what you just described? I think it's pretty good. We got to wrap this up, though, and uh, I want to get to these applications, so we'll be right back. here may help us deal with some of what we talked about in the last segment. Maybe not. But the application seems to be along the theme of the justice of God. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what everybody's struggling with here. If you struggle with this passage, what's going on is you're thinking, you know, can a just God, can a righteous God send people to hell? Mm -hmm. Can he send people to hell 
who just haven't had the benefit or the opportunity to know him or to know the gospel. So we're going to do we're going to bring out from the text evidences of the justice of God. Yeah. A discussion of the justice of God noting number 1 that God is just because we were condemned already. Now that's right. kind of the assumption approaching the text. Not you know it's not really spelled out really well here but I always think of John 3 in this particular connection People stop reading after verse 16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Mm -hmm. But verses 17 and 18 tell us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So it's not that you're condemned, it's that you're condemned already. I think the phrase is very mm -hmm. important as we grapple with condemnation, with hell, because we get this idea that when Christianity came on the scene, Christianity condemned everybody. Yeah. Or when Jesus came on the scene, he came to condemn everybody. And that's mm -hmm. how we start painting this image of God as a bad guy in our minds. The reality is our sins condemned us. Mm -hmm. That Now, whether we accept that or not, that's our choice. The reality of the situation is God is righteous. When we fall away from that righteousness, we stand in condemnation. Mm -hmm. And that that's what our sin did. Jesus right. came to save. He And the reason why only those who know God and obey the gospel are saved mm -hmm. is that reason. Because Jesus was sent as the antidote, yeah. as the remedy. Mm -hmm. He wasn't sent to cause the problem. But yeah. yeah, isn't that how people look at Jesus a lot today, or Christians in general? Is you know we're we're here to condemn everybody. Well, he's mm -hmm. always you know he condemned me. Um, that's the wrong perspective. That's not the biblical perspective on things. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about the message of the Bible, uh, definitely in America right now. Because mm -hmm. everybody, when they think of Christianity, one of the first things that come to their mind is judgmental, hypocritical, right? Mm -hmm. In the worst case scenario. You know, hopefully most people are thinking loving, well-meaning people. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, know, the cockroaches are there whether you turn the light on or not. Yeah, you know, <laughs> the true. floor is moving whether you can see that or not. The the yeah. cockroaches are there. Yeah. Um, and I, that imagery also comes from John, who talks about the light and mm -hmm. how those who are in sin don't like the light because it exposes their deeds. Yeah. So the condemnation is there whether you want to look at it or not. And I think that's supported all over the New Testament, but most thoroughly, I think, in Ephesians 2 is one of the places where he says, while we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And he's talking about everybody, everyone's a child, a child of wrath, just like he says, like the rest of mankind. So mm -hmm. everyone is away from God. The first three chapters of Romans, Paul's building that point methodically. Everybody is condemned already. Mm -hmm. But then God That's brings true. Christ to reverse the condemnation to bring to bring life to everyone. That's right. Okay, so here's the second point. After we we noted that God is just because we are condemned already. Number two, God is just because He punishes and He rewards. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, of course, is through Jesus. But we have verses six and seven. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, 
for there's punishing the evildoers. And verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. Mm-hmm. So there is punishment and there is relief. There is affliction yeah. and reward. Um, and I think we've got to qualify the punishment and the relief, the affliction and the reward. Because right, when we read this, yeah. we say God thinks that it's fair to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So if you're afflicted by somebody, God thinks it's fair for him to afflict them. And so for a second, maybe before you finish this sentence, you might be thinking, okay, well, that sounds good to me. If somebody messes with me, I mess with them. You know, if somebody does this, then I repay whatever they did, maybe even worse than what they did to me. Um, and then even in the next verse, he says he grants relief to those who are afflicted. So uh, obviously they're talking to the Thessalonians. Those are people who are trying to, their best to follow God. So they're Christians. So I think we get two misconceptions here. Number one is that uh, whenever somebody does something wrong to us, that it's going to come back around to them, you know, like karma. You know, if somebody cheats you out yeah. of some money, well, you just wait. It won't be long till somebody cheats them back. They'll get what's coming to them. Hmm. And in the same way, you know, I think we misconstrue a little bit the comfort and the hope that God brings us. We say, you know, God is going to pull you through these difficult times. And when we say that, we can mean totally different things. Mm-hmm. And it's all brought it's all brought to a point when he finishes this sentence. So he says he's going to afflict those who afflict you. He's going to grant relief to you when you're afflicted, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Mm. So all of these wrongings yeah. of the people here that they're that they're having to endure, they're not going to be set right before Jesus comes. There's no promise of that. Now they might yeah. be set right. It you could know. happen. Somebody gets sick, they might get better. Somebody's persecuted, they might uh, they might stop. You know, they the might government may stop them. Yeah. You know, the government is God's way of doing this here mm-hmm. in the here and now. Uh, Romans 13 has some similar language when it's talking about the government, except the one doing the rewarding and the punishing is the government. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do what is good and you will receive his approval for he's God's mm-hmm. servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid because he does not bear the sword in vain. He's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Peter says this also in 1 Peter 2. So the government is here, ordained by God, to punish evildoers and to reward those who do good. Mm-hmm. Do they do a good job at that? Well, it depends on what government you're talking about. But no government is uh, perfect. In fact, all governments are far from being perfect. But that's right. God's system for here, mm-hmm. justice here. It's not perfect, so there is a judgment day when everything will be fixed, right, right and wrong, mm-hmm. will be in the correct columns at yeah. that point. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no guarantee of that kind of thing happening, although God hasn't left us without it. It's just yeah. you know run by humans, so it's an imperfect system. Yeah, I just think it's good to, to keep in mind that whenever you are wronged, whenever someone does you wrong, or whenever you're going through an affliction, don't put your hope in... Well, that person's going to get theirs back, you know, at some point, mm-hmm. or I'm going to get better if I'm sick, or that my situation's going to get better. The hope that we have is not based on those things getting fixed or remedied in the here and now. The hope is all based upon when Jesus comes back. Mm-hmm. That's the real hope. And if 
Yeah, that, you know, that's right. I'm afraid that if we're in a time of affliction and if we're being wronged and what we're looking for, what we really desire is for the person wronging us to be wronged themselves, to get what's coming to them, or if we're desiring our, you know, like the immediate physical solution, then I think we're missing out on what is actually going to give us that peace that passes all understanding. So right. then we can say, you know, when you have these stories, incredible stories, people on their deathbed saying, like, I'm okay with this, it's fine. Uh, it's because their hope is not in them restoring their health and God, mm-hmm. you know, comforting them when they're afflicted uh, or relieving them when they're afflicted. Their hope is in that day when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Yeah, that's that's right. Okay, the third and final thing we're going to talk about is that God is just, despite the fact that he makes you worthy, twice Paul says this, verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, and verse 11, where he says here that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. Uh, So, now, here's the problem here. We all have sinned, which has brought us into condemnation, but not all will be destroyed with eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, uh, because God makes us worthy. Now, if God is righteous, and we've been saying all along that he, does, he punishes sin, He rewards good, so how can you say that He is righteous and then say that He makes us worthy? Mm-hmm. And the system for that is explained, I think, in the most concise manner in Romans 3, 24 and following, where he says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, here's the part where God is able to be just despite making us worthy. This mm-hmm. was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is just in that he does not um, sweep sin under the rug. He does not ignore sin. Mm -hmm. He made Jesus pay for the sin. And that is how he's justifier. He can be both just and justifier at the same time. So he is righteous in making us worthy through the cross. There's no other way but the cross that we can be made worthy without destroying the righteousness of God. I'm glad you took us to that passage because that phrase, it, like it's grammatically, it is literally the answer to the question that we just posed. Uh How can God be a righteous God and have righteous judgment and at the same time make people righteous or justify people? And after... The explanation, verse 26, he says, blah, blah, blah. It was to show his righteousness so that he could be just and justifier. Yeah. The people who have faith in Jesus. So it being the propitiation yeah. of Christ. He's saying, yeah. why? Well, that's why. Mm-hmm. You know, all these things I just said, this was to show how he can be exactly. a just God and also save people through his son, Jesus. So, yeah. That's well, that's a, about all the time we've got. Um, that's, a good, that's a good discussion.
Yeah. We're really going to have to manage our time wisely next week. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult yeah. discussion, I think. Uh, interesting, chapter. but uh, there is so much not revealed. I'm going to have way more things. questions next week than little nuggets of input. Yeah, and there are going to be questions. some things that we just won't be able to answer fully. That's just the way that chapter is. But it's a fascinating chapter and mm-hmm. some new territory for everybody. So I think that uh, our listeners will enjoy that. While you're waiting on that with great anticipation, you might check out our website, the66.net, or follow us on Twitter to get updates, uh, Facebook as well. Um, we're all over the place. So you yeah, can uh, check We are in. on the internet. We are on it, on top of it. As you have been on top of this podcast. Now, here's me having trouble getting my way out of this. So I'm going to say this. Next week. See you next time. We're going to look at, uh, yeah, we're going to look at the man of sin. I hope that all of you will join us next time on the 66. 